Hi, I'm Jared Wood. I am a partner at Egloff and Wood in uh, Newton, Massachusetts. Uh, I practice exclusively in domestic relations and uh, am a former law clerk of the uh, Probate and Family Court. And uh, I am very happy to be here uh, with my uh, friend and <laughs> former opposing counsel, uh, Gina Calabro. Sure. Hi, everyone. My name is Gina Calabro, and I'm a partner at Brick Jones McBrien and Hickey. I've been practicing family law for almost 20 years, and uh, I, too, was a former law clerk uh, with the justices of the Probate and Family Court, and also happy to be here to talk to you today about Chapter 208, Section 34, which is our uh, primarily our asset division statute and discovery related to the uh, valuation and division of marital assets. Um, before I turn it back over to Jared, just quickly, Massachusetts is an equitable division state. Um, and, and basically, you know, when we have clients come in, they always have questions about what is included, what's potentially subject to division in a divorce. And the easiest way that I explain it to lay people, to clients, is that in Massachusetts, if you think of the marital estate as a pie, everything gets thrown into the pot, whether it's titled to uh, one's party, the other party, the parties jointly, whether it was gifted during the marriage, inherited, whether it was an asset that one of the parties brought into the marriage, um, it really doesn't matter. It's all part of the pot for purposes of, of equitably dividing the marital estate. And then we have these factors, which we will talk about today, that a court will use or that attorneys will use to inform them in how to divide the pie. So with that, I'm going to turn things over to Jared, who's going to talk a little bit about uh, generally about discovery to start. So one of the concepts that I think is important to pay attention to and to acknowledge when you are thinking about how to approach discovery in a case is timing of valuation. And in Massachusetts, uh, there is case law that establishes that in most cases, Assets are valued as of the time of the divorce trial. Many clients are alarmed to learn this. They want valuation to stop uh, upon a date of separation or upon a date that uh, a filing is made. But uh, valuation of assets in most situations, uh, there are some exceptions, but they're exceptional. Uh, in most situations, uh, the value of an asset changes during the course of uh, divorce litigation. And so it can be disadvantageous if you know that a case is going to be going on for a long period of time uh, to fixate on too early a value, uh, particularly if you have to spend money to obtain that value. Mm -hmm. So that's just a, a concept to consider as you think about the tools in your bag that you're going to use to, uh, to discover what you need to for a divorce. Um, Discovery during a divorce primarily begins, not always, but primarily begins with the mandatory disclosure required by Supplemental Probate Court Rule 410. Um, for those of you unfamiliar with Rule 410, you should read it. And it is a rule that, although I know well, I go back to frequently to double check what exactly 410 requires. But um, as, as you may know, Rule 410 provides that within 45 days of the date of service, parties are to exchange three years of bank records, retirement account statements, uh, tax returns, the four most recent pay stubs, uh, uh, documentation regarding the cost and nature of health insurance. Uh, there are other provisions that you provide any copies of loan applications from the past three years. I think that's less often exchanged. Many people don't have that. Uh, or any financial statements that were prepared during the prior three years. Um, oftentimes, this doesn't get done in the first 45 days. I think it's a professional courtesy to talk to your opposing counsel uh, early in a case and try to establish an aspirational deadline that's realistic of when you're going to get it done and when you're going to exchange it. Sometimes three years of an exchange isn't necessary. Uh, if I talk to a client and she or he indicates that, you know, there was complete financial transparency during a, a marriage, 
that they have confidence, that they know the contents of the marital estate, that they aren't concerned about any divorce planning or shenanigans. Um, maybe we just agree to one year of an exchange. Maybe we further limit the parameters, uh, you know, especially something on, on retirement assets. So it, it can vary case by case if you have any concerns about the other side's uh, honesty or if your client is in the dark about the contents of a marital estate. I think you need to do your due diligence and ask for all three years. Um, any thoughts on that? No, I, I mean, I always explain to clients that this is sort of the jumping off point for discovery in that it's, uh, it's a starting point and you have these additional tools if you want to get information beyond that, but that the, the legislature or the rule makers have somehow acknowledged that at a minimum, there should be this sort of basic subset of knowledge that both parties have about the marital estate moving forward. Um, so yeah, I think you said it, said yeah. it all. This is also something that I don't play games with. While there is time in, in a case when it may make sense to withhold something until you get something back from the other side, this isn't like an exchange of pretrial memos. Mm -hmm. uh, when my Rule 410 is done, I tend to produce it. Um, and, and that gives me the high ground uh, in the event that the other side is slower, doesn't produce something that I can tell the judge, I produced my Rule 410 in a timely manner. Um, Sometimes early in a case, it becomes clear, particularly when a client or an opposing party has an interest in uh, a business, um, that there is going to be a need for confidentiality agreements. And uh, if you haven't drafted one of these or used one of these, I would ask around for someone that's used one. I don't think there's a need to reinvent the will, uh, but there are times when it will give someone security uh, that there's an agreement in place, that the information that is disclosed and shared during discovery isn't going to end up on the internet. Uh, you know, the, the a confidentiality agreement should be broad enough that the attorneys can see it, their experts can see it, uh, and certain, you know, it should define under what circumstances it can be presented to the court. But early in a case, especially if it's involving a closely held business or something sensitive, uh, there may be a need to establish uh, confidentiality agreements before you move on. One thing I would just add to that is that if you have a client who is an executive who receives, um, not even just an executive, an employee of a, even a large company, uh, I see this a lot like in biotech field, places, science, places where people have equity compensation. If you look at their employment agreement, Sometimes there are confidentiality provisions in the employment agreement. So I always like to check because sometimes you will have a client who is already under an obligation from their employer to keep certain information confidential. And that can sometimes extend to information regarding their compensation. And so you want to make sure that you're not putting your own client in violation of their own employment agreement. So I always check to there as well because... Um, you know, it's better to be safe than sorry with respect to just our clients' obligations outside of the divorce. And if there is that obligation, then I ask for a confidentiality agreement. Once uh, you've determined whether or not confidentiality needs to be addressed, there are a number of different specific discovery tools that are available to you. And I have to say, one of the more frustrating things I see in my practice, and I see it from good lawyers and good law firms are attorneys who have a form they send out or a, a style of, you know, of uh, conducting discovery that is never tailored for a specific case, mm -hmm. that isn't specific to the facts and circumstances of a case. They have one big request for production of documents with 60 different items that they send off to everyone. And I think that is a mistake. I think that really good lawyering requires at the beginning of a case, sometimes after you reviewed 410 but you're, and you've exchanged a financial statement, but in the beginning, making an assessment of what the needs are in your case. Is this a child custody case? Is this a case involving someone who is unemployed or underemployed? Is this a case where conduct uh, is an issue? 
Is this an accounting case? Uh, or is it all of these? The things that you anticipate being raised and addressed and contested really need to drive what you decide to do it with your discovery. There is not a one size fit all. There is not one good master request for production of documents or interrogatories that if you, you know, always send that out, that will cover your bases and uh, amount to good lawyering. Uh, the, the opposite is true. Um, I, I want to say also, if you are the first one serving discovery on the other side, and I, for some reason, frequently am, um, but if I am the first one serving discovery, I find that if I am surgical, if I ask for what I need, if I am thoughtful and, and not overly burdensome, that I am far more likely to get that in response from the other side. And that saves everyone money. It saves everyone time. There are exceptions. Um, but if I only ask for three years worth of a certain document, it you know, is less likely that the other side's gonna ask me for 10 years. If I serve someone with a, a terrible, huge, you know, just barrage of discovery, I am guaranteeing that I'm going to get that in return. Um, so, you know, setting the tone through thoughtful, well-crafted, smart discovery um, will also potentially make it easier for you when you're on the receiving end. Um, so with that said, I, I thought I would address just the, the typical and some less typical discovery options that are available. I think the most common are requests for production of documents. And requests for production of documents are uh, governed by Rule 34. I have to say, if you don't have the purple book, I would strongly recommend that you get the purple book. And uh, it has not only the rules and the supplemental rules, but the statute. And it's a helpful place uh, for, uh, for when you need to go back and look at the rules to see what the rules say. And I have to go back to the rules all the time. And I'm also pleased that Gina is one of the uh, authors and editors of the Purple Book this year. Another book that I find helpful is Kindergarten's, uh, Kindergarten's Domestic Relations Rules and Statutes Annotated. Again, it, it, it goes into detail uh, about what are the parameters of a certain type of uh, discovery tool in a way that I think is a helpful resource. Um, but going back to requests for production of documents uh, governed by Rule 34, these can only be served on opposing parties, that you can't serve a request for production of documents on uh, a non-party. Um, these are frequently used when you need to go beyond what isn't covered in Rule 410. So for financial records, I frequently request credit card statements. If I need uh, account statements or bank records that go back more than three years, this is when I ask for them. I am hesitant to do that. I, I usually have to have a good reason to want to go back more than three years. But if I do, I ask for it. Uh, business records. And if you are using a business uh, valuation expert, you want to call that person up and say, give me a list of everything I need to ask for. I will include that in my request for production of documents. If there are trust interests or any kind of complicated estate planning interests, I, you know, I ask for trust documents as well. Um, these can also, again, depending on where the, uh, you know, what the case is about, you can be thoughtful about this. Uh, you know, in, I had a case where I was pretty sure the other side was talking with everybody about how terrible my client was. And so I served a request in which I required her to produce all texts and emails from the past year in which she referenced the divorce. And I don't typically ask for that, but in this case, it made sense. Um, there is no limit on uh, the number of questions you, should, you can ask. Though if you are burdensome, if you ask, if you submit 80 different requests for production of documents, 
Uh, you could be inviting the involvement of a discovery master, which is expensive. You are guaranteeing they're going to serve you back with 81. Uh, and it, it's just, I think, bad lawyering in most situations. Uh, technically, you have 30 days to reply to a request for production of documents. I find that in many cases, that is aspirational and that there isn't a... A, a true consequence if you're a little late. I think it's a professional courtesy to, if you need more time to ask for it in advance and say, I'm in the process of, of gathering documents, I'm gonna need more than 30 days. Um, that is different from the next tool uh, that is, I think, frequently used, which is interrogatories. Uh, interrogatories are, uh, they are addressed in rule 33, these are written questions to which the uh, respondent, and these only work again with parties, you can't serve interrogatories on uh, a non-party. Uh, interrogatories are written questions. The, the responding party must answer the questions in writing, sign it under the penalties of, pains and penalties of perjury. Um, the, a couple things to consider with interrogatories. Um, we frequently refer to expert interrogatories, which are questions in which you ask the other side to identify their expert witness, identify the substance of the testimony of the expert witness, identify the facts that the expert uh, witness relied upon, uh, require the expert to identify materials that he or she used in forming their opinion. Um, Although we sometimes title expert interrogatories separately from interrogatories, there is no specific or separate rule for expert interrogatories. They fall under Rule 33. Um, this is an area where attorneys can easily commit malpractice by not serving expert interrogatories, by not doing the basic discovery needed to know what the other side is going to say at trial so you are not ambushed. And alternatively, or uh, on the other side of that, uh, not providing a good answer to expert interrogatories can be malpractice because you, if you don't do a good job to that, your expert can be precluded from giving the testimony you want them to give a trial. Um, the, what's important to remember about interrogatories is that there is a limit of 30 questions and very good attorneys at very big and expensive law firms make this mistake all the time. It does not matter what interrogatory number is printed on the interrogatory. The, the rule specifically says that it is the uh, limit to 30 questions and 30 subparts. And so if you have uh, three questions with 10 subparts, that is your 30 question limit. Mm -hmm. uh, it is my practice to, when I get a set of interrogatories, I go through and I start counting them. And I, I take a pen and I go through and say, this is one question, this is a separate question, this is a third question, and I go to 30. And I stop answering interrogatories after I get to 30. Um, and we can talk a little bit more about that later today, perhaps. But what is important from the perspective of someone drafting is, number one, you want to make sure that your expert interrogatories get either served first. You don't have to serve all your interrogatories as part of one pleading. I know attorneys that, as a matter of fact, they send out their expert interrogatories at the beginning of every case, and they may supplement it with a second set of interrogatories that has their remaining questions but you want to make sure that your expert interrogatories get asked and that they are within the 30 question limit. You want to make sure that you are being smart about the questions you ask. I don't know how many people have served me with 60 interrogatories. The first one is, please state your name, your address, your date of birth, your social security number, and your employer. I don't think you need that information for most cases. You can get that somewhere else. And arguably, you've used up three or four different interrogatories for something that you don't need. So it is, I think, critical and the sign of a good lawyer when you think, what do I need for this case? I'm going to focus on those questions only, and I'm going to come in under 30. Any? I'm going to... Nope. Okay. 
um, craft them narrowly, and also you can use the definitions in interrogatories to make the job a little easier and potentially save you a question. So the definitions, if you say, when asked to identify a person, please provide that person's name, address, you know, and maybe something else. That way you don't have to ask, you know, three separate questions to get what you could have gotten through one question if you'd use the definitions appropriately. Um, moving on, another common uh, uh, discovery tool are subpoenas. Subpoenas can go to anyone that has or any entity that has a presence in the Commonwealth of Massachusetts. There are options for serving subpoenas on persons and entities outside of Massachusetts. Uh, you have to obtain something called letters rogatory that is beyond the scope of the discussion we're going to have today. Uh, but the, the, the benefit of a subpoena is uh, a couple. Number one, you can again serve them on non-parties. Uh, these are helpful if you are uh, concerned that the other party isn't being honest, or maybe the other side's really disorganized. Uh, it may make sense to subpoena their bank if you didn't trust that their Rule 410 production was complete. And, you know, serve a subpoena on a bank with the client's or the, the other side's social security number and double check uh, whether everything is there. Subpoenas come with some additional costs. There's not only the, the, the cost of drafting them, but you have to have a constable serve them on the agent. Uh, there's a cost to that. Uh, many banks or institutions, when they provide a response, they send you an invoice. And you know, I've had cases where I've sent off 10 or 15 subpoenas. That's usually exceptional. Uh, but you, know, you could drive up a cost very quickly. So be smart about when using subpoenas. Subpoenas are also oftentimes necessary if you want records from DCF. Um, and that you've got to sometimes be persistent, but if you, if you have a case involving DCF, service uh, subpoena on them is necessary. Um, another tool that is used less common but is important are requests for admissions. And requests for admissions, the one of the critical things to remember about a request for uh, admissions is that the other side, or that if you if you receive a request for admissions, you must respond within 30 days, or it is it, your failure to do so is deemed an admission. Um, the the request for uh, admission I've seen effectively used uh, in cases where there's a concern about conduct. Uh, you know, ask someone, do you? You know, the statement, have you used cocaine in the past 30 days? Have you used cocaine in the past 60 days? Have you used cocaine in the past year? Have you ever driven while the, uh, with the children while intoxicated? I, you know, I, I've been on the receiving end of those where it is, it can be very effective in sussing out issues of conduct that you would not necessarily get through a request for production of documents or interrogatories. Um, they can also be used to quickly uh, get someone to confirm that a document is genuine, particularly a financial document. So if you have a record that you're not sure if the other person's going to say is bogus or, or, or accurate, you can submit a financial document with a request for admissions and say, do you admit that attachment A is a genuine and real contract that you signed? Uh, and that can be the fastest way to do that. Um, I mentioned depositions, and um, th this is the last one that I'm going to discuss uh, as part of this before I pass the ball to Gina. Um, depositions can be very helpful. They have several purposes. They can be used to find information. They can be used to examine the credibility of a witness to see whether or not they are going to be good on the stand uh, to, to kind of get a sense of how they'd be at trial. Uh, they can be used to intimidate the other side and to encourage settlement. It is not uncommon for someone to schedule the other side's deposition uh, and then say, let's meet an hour beforehand and discuss settlement. And sometimes the threat of a deposition gets someone to settle the case. Um, they can be used to embarrass and harass the other side. I am not suggesting that you do that, but you need to be mindful that that is indeed something that frequently happens. 
if your if your client is uh, dating someone new, their new dating partner could easily be deposed, and that may give your client reason to want to settle the case. Depositions are expensive, not only because you they take up hours of time uh, in actually conducting them, and you are paying for a stenographer. But additionally, they take out if you do them well, they take hours of time to prepare. There are some practitioners who are gifted and can sit down and just take a deposition. I am not one of those practitioners. I need to go through the documents first and line up my exhibits and come up with an outline of what I'm going to ask. Um, you know, depositions are one of those skills. You can have an entire uh, brown bag on that that you get better with time and that I use sparingly because they're so expensive and time consuming. Um, they oftentimes are best used after other discovery has been completed so that you have the documents in front of you that you need. So you have interrogatories or admissions responses in front of you that you can use. You know, I, I do know of good attorneys that say they won't do a, a motion for temporary orders without having taken the other side's deposition first. I think that's um, atypical, but it's, you know, certainly an option. Um, just two more quick things. Sorry, I know I said depositions would be the last. Um, two quick things to consider. One is a Vaughn affidavit. Uh, as you may know, uh, what someone may inherit or receive as gifts uh, after the divorce is one of the relevant factors that a court can consider. Uh, if you are unfamiliar with Vaughn affidavits, it's named after a case, Vaughn v. Vaughn, uh, it is something that you should look up and become familiar with. It is an opportunity to, in, in lieu of a deposition, to have your, your client's parents or grandparents or someone in their family provide an affidavit that describes the gifts and inherit the contents of their estate plan and what your client may be receiving. Um, another thing to consider is that in addition to Rule 34 addressing the request for production of documents, it also gives you the right to access land, to set up a time to go on to someone else's property or to go and inspect someone's uh, safety deposit box. Not used very often, uh, very often, but it is a tool uh, that can be used. And I feel like I have been rambling. Um, anything so, to add to that? No. We're going to have to jump, move on, I think. So let's talk about valuation techniques because there are different parts of the marital estate. And one of the first things that you need to do before you can start talking about resolution of a matter is understand the value of the different, different assets that are comprising marital estate. So let's talk about real estate first. Um, residential real estate. Assuming that the house isn't going to be sold, Parties need to agree upon the value of the marital home, the vacation home, um, et cetera, before we can decide what's going to happen to it. Is someone buying out the other person's interest? A few different ways that that can be done. One, your clients can simply agree on a value. If they both are comfortable with a the value, they say, okay, we think this house is worth $800,000. Sounds good to me. Great. You can do anything by agreement without appraisals if you want, pretty much. Uh, two, you can get a comparative market analysis from a broker. Three, you can get an appraisal from a real estate appraiser. Uh, you can consider doing those things jointly where both parties agree with counsel to hire someone jointly so that hopefully that minimizes the amount of uh, haggling after the fact over the information that's provided, not always. Um, or each party can get a separate appraisal done. Uh, I think that when making decisions about what to do there, you need to take the temperature of the case. If it seems like a case that is going to be heavily litigated, uh, where you're dealing with a very difficult opposing party or opposing counsel, I might be more inclined to get an appraisal because I might think that that's, you know, the case is kind of heading toward litigation. If it's a case where things are in more of a collaborative style posture, that might be one where you talk about doing something jointly or you get a CMA to start from a broker and sort of see you know, where things land. Oftentimes what I'll do is prior to exchanging financial statements, I'll, you know, talk with the client about their various options, but I don't necessarily rush right out to get an appraisal out of the gate because 
Sometimes when there's an exchange of financial statements, you might find that people are really not that far apart in terms of their valuation. And oftentimes if the values are, you know, within call it 10% of each other, people frequently will agree to just dispose of the issue by splitting the difference of the value and moving on. Um, commercial real estate valuation is a whole separate animal, but be mindful that if you have a business, you need to understand whether there's underlying real estate owned by the business or by the parties it needs to be valued or whether folks separately own commercial real estate or have a vacation home, for example, that might also be an income producing property. There are different kinds of appraisers equipped to um, appraise you know, different types of real estate. Moving on to retirement. You have your basic plans, like a defined contribution plan, a 401k, for example, where the value is typically the value that you find on the account statement. A couple things to be aware of. Sometimes people will take loans against their retirement accounts. Make sure you look for that. If a loan is taken, you need to decide sort of what's happening with the loan. Um, is that something where we're counting the value before the loan was taken or after? Um, that's one thing to think about. Another is sometimes I've seen in some situations retirement accounts where part of the retirement account is invested in um, like limited partnership interests or other kind of funky investments where there's a portion of the retirement account where the value given by the uh, plan administrator for that particular retirement account is a phantom value. I don't think that these come up super frequently, but I am thinking of a case I had this year where that was the situation. And so it can just be a little tricky because it makes the overall kind of stated value of the retirement account on the um, account statement less reliable. So just familiarize yourself with your client's retirement account statement to make sure there's nothing kind of funky about the retirement account. Pensions. Pensions are defined benefit plans and they are typically hard to value and the values that are provided by the employer are often not reliable. So if you have a teacher, for example, that has a Massachusetts MTRS pension, the value that your client gets on that statement once a year is just the value of their contribution account. It's not really the value of their pension. We have professionals that we rely on to help us with respect to pensions because you can either A, pay a professional to value the pension, or B, you can consider having the pension divided by quadro in the divorce such that you don't need to actually value the pension because there is an equitable mechanism to just divide the pension at the, at the divorce. So, um, I often will bring in an expert when I need to wrap my brain around a pension. Similarly, if I see something that's an annuity, an annuity is a product that is sold by lots of different you know, companies and can mean different things depending on the company that's selling it. There is not typically a one-size-fits-all annuity. So when I see an annuity, I really have to get more information so that I can figure out, is this more like a defined contribution plan where there's an ascertainable value? Is this an annuity that is kind of funky where we might need to bring in, you know, someone from PASA, for example, and have an actuary look at the annuity? How does the annuity work? Um, because that helps us figure out how we're going to divide it. Um, the other thing I will just mention is that you can use tax returns when you are trying to make sure that all of the retirement assets are accounted for because oftentimes people will have retirement plans where they'll be participating in a 401k at a company, they'll leave their job, and then sometimes that 401k will stay with the company, sometimes they'll roll it over into an IRA. So I always like to look at the tax returns just to see what's happened, because if there's been a rollover, there's often been a 1099 produced. Um, even though it's a non-taxable event, there is information in the tax return that can be helpful there. Um, the other thing I will just mention about tax returns is that they can also be a good place for finding assets that perhaps one or the other of the parties has failed to disclose. So if you look at the different schedules to the tax return, you will see that there is a schedule where people, where you know, all of the interest and dividend income is reported. Um, if you look at the schedule that reports capital gain income, you might find that there are assets that you might not have known, known about, even bank accounts. Sometimes people will forget to include. Similarly, if you look at Schedule E to the tax return, you will find that if um, a party has an investment in a limited partnership, for example, or um, an LLC or some other entity where they're receiving a K-1, the entity will be on the Schedule E. And I also find that sometimes people don't even remember what they have for limited partnership interests, for example. Valuation of tangible personal property. 
Um, just quickly, one, judges hate, hate to deal with division of tangible, tangible personal property. I think most people prefer not to appraise tangible personal property unless it's something of significant value or something unique. So occasionally we will see things like real estate, not real estate, excuse me, jewelry appraisals, if there's an art collection, if there are very expensive instruments. Um, I typically will do, uh, in a document request, I will ask for any appraisals that exist on tangible personal property. You can also ask for insurance policies to look at whether there's a writer, for example, to a homeowner's insurance policy that would give you some indication of value regarding specific assets. And also just on tangible property, don't forget um, to ask for an inventory of any safety deposit box or boxes or safes that exist. And if you have to, you can do that by interrogatory. I also find um, sometimes that you can ask kind of informally for people to cooperate in providing that information and they will. A couple of other things to be mindful of, future receivables and lawsuits pending. Uh, if someone has an outstanding lawsuit pending, either something where they are the plaintiff and they recover funds, or where they're the defendant and there may be a liability owed down the, in the, down the road, you certainly want to ask about that and get information because a future receivable is an asset um, and a potential liability is something that's going to need to be dealt with. So I often will use document requests and interrogatories for that purpose. Um, valuation of things that can't be valued, just briefly, stock options and unvested restricted stock units. Number one, um, if you haven't already read the Bacanti versus Morton case, uh, that case is helpful because there's a formula in that case that talks about how we divide these things up. Um, but I also just want to say that it is a very common mistake for clients to come in and think that if they have a statement from their employer that says, oh, look, all of my stock options are worth $500,000. Well, that's all well and good, but that's a phantom value. These assets are not things that are readily valued until the time that you're exercising your option or the time that your unvested restricted stock vests. We could spend a whole hour on this, but just briefly what I would say is um, just be careful there because you don't want to rely on those phantom values. It's why we have case law that talks about how we equitably divide the marital portion of these things. Similarly, with limited partnership interests, those are also incredibly difficult to value. So tips are, and often they're not valued. What we often do is we just have the parties continue to sort of jointly share in some capacity um, in those entities and kind of both continue, continue to contribute to the partnership interest and equally share in the distributions that come out. But things to ask for, get the plan documents. You can ask um, about capital contributions that have been made via an interrogatory or informally if there's cooperation. Find out whether there are any clawback provisions. What is the history of distributions then? Is this a limited partnership interest that's close to winding down or is it kind of just starting out? Um, on the valuation of businesses, we could spend an hour on that as well. What I would say is um, you're going to need to use an expert for that. So early on in the case, I will make a phone call to an expert um, and to just get a gut check. What are we looking at here? Is this a business that's going to need to be valued or not? What information are we going to need? As Jared said earlier, you get your list from your expert so that you know what information you need to obtain in discovery. And then finally, if there are trusts, um, Again, it can be a little bit tricky. If someone has a revocable trust, in my mind, that's the same thing. Essentially, if they have a funded revocable trust where they're the grantor and the beneficiary, they have access to that during their life. It's not very different from having their own savings account. If someone is the beneficiary of an irrevocable trust, you certainly want to get a copy of the trust instrument and dig in and try and understand what is the extent of their beneficial interest um, is it well-defined? Is it an open class of beneficiary, which makes things more speculative? Is the trust funded right now? So you need to kind of understand what are the rules for the trust? What money might my client actually have access to now versus whether this is more of an expectancy where someone might not really have access to any funds until someone dies? Because if it's an expectancy, while it is relevant under Section 34, we'll talk about that in a moment, it's not a marital asset. Um, so we're going to move on to talking about the Section 34 factors. We've only got about 10 to 15 minutes left before we're going to take questions. So I think we're going to just jump through things quickly and kind of talk about the different factors under Section 34 that are somewhat, you know, they're all relevant. You should certainly read the statute and look at all of the factors. There are mandatory factors the court has to consider. 
And then there are a few factors, which I think are some of the most important factors that the court has discretion to consider, but are not required to consider. And it's very strange to me because they tend to be the things that move the needle the most, but we'll just kind of jump right in. So I'm gonna just very quickly talk about conduct and how it might impact the division of assets. So it's often not a factor unless there's really been misconduct. So people will frequently say, my spouse had an affair, does anybody care? And on a custody on the custody side, maybe they care if children have been kind of inappropriately exposed to that. But on the financial side, they're really, I find that most judges really are not all that interested in hearing about affairs unless there's been some sort of dissipation of marital assets, a lot of money spent on the relationship relative to the size of the marital estate. Um, I have seen rarely disproportionate assets, a disproportionate division of assets in cases where there has been significant domestic violence that has restricted a, the victim's ability to earn money. I've seen it very rarely, I think, but I, I recall the case where I did see it during my clerkship. Um, dissipation of assets on extravagant spending or gambling. Again, I think it's always an uphill battle with judges to prove those issues, but if there has really been significant dissipation relative to the size of the marital estate, particularly if it's been post-separation when everybody's on notice that a divorce is coming and it's been egregious, I do think sometimes that can move the needle a little bit on the division of assets. Um, or if there's been any sort of hiding of assets, um, thinking of a situation where someone's maybe moved assets outside of the marital estate by trying to hide them in a trust, for example, without the other party's knowledge, that's the type of conduct where a court might decide based on that um, behavior to make a disproportionate division of the marital estate. Do you want to take over and talk about health? Yeah, so health of the parties is one of the factors that a court could consider. And this is where I think attorneys with some class and who approach us the right way, you know, are respectful of medical privacy to the extent they can be. And, and what I mean by that is I don't go digging into someone's health unless they indicate that it's going to be an issue that is relevant to the case. So I frequently have a uh, an interrogatory and a just uh, a request for production of documents that says something to the extent of if you assert that you have a health or medical condition that is relevant to the division of property or the or custody or your receipt of support, identify uh, what that is. Who your treating physician is and produce all documents uh, that support that. I, I've conflated an interrogatory there and a request for production of documents. But again, I, I usually, I don't want to see people's medical records if it's unnecessary. So I usually put the burden on the other side to say, if this is relevant, provide proof that it's legitimate and explain, you know, and provide me the proof. All right, so the next thing we're going to talk about is um, the opportunity for future acquisition of, of income or assets, which is one of our Section 34 factors. So what are we talking about here? We're talking about the party's respective, respective abilities to accumulate income and assets through employment, um, through inheritance, maybe through a trust interest, uh, things of that nature. And it's very frequent that parties will come in and say, um, can he or she get at my inheritance? You know, I'm going to inherit a lot of money when mom and dad pass. Can they can they get that? Um, and so it's sort of the answer is, well, it's not that if you inherit down the road that your spouse is going to be entitled after the divorce to a piece of that. That's not the issue here. But the issue is that the court is allowed to consider the possibility that um, someone is going to inherit when deciding how to divide up the marital estate. So where do I find that that is most frequently a successful argument to make? I think it's where um, you have a situation where you've had a long enough marriage. I mean, I don't see this really factoring in when you have a five-year marriage or even a seven-year marriage, where you have a long enough marriage where the expectancy for one of the parties is very significant as compared to the overall value of the marital estate, such that it's going to put this person in a significantly greater position than the spouse from whom you know they're, they're getting a divorce. Um, and so the court can, can look at that and, and decide perhaps they're gonna disproportionately divide all of the marital estate or even some portion of the marital estate. So I'm thinking of a case once where there was a house in another country that 
one of the parties was going to inherit. Um, and the court ended up deciding that because that person had sort of this superior ability to acquire assets through that inheritance, that on the marital home, there was going to be a slightly disproportionate division in the non-receiving party's favor. Um, this is where your Vaughn affidavit comes in that Jared mentioned earlier so that you can get an understanding uh, if it's the appropriate case as to what the other opposing party might receive um, during an inheritance. And then uh, similarly with respect to trust, this is where just you need to do your homework to make sure that you understand what might be coming down the road via, via trust. Because again, it might be that it's a trust that's not something that can be tapped into now or considered a marital asset now for purposes of division, but it is something that the court is allowed to consider when looking just relatively at the equities of the case. Uh, the other thing I will just briefly mention is that 208 section 34 used to be the primary statute that we used when we were also dealing with support, aka alimony, before the Alimony Reform Act. And so there are some, there is definitely now that we have our, our separate alimony statutes, there is still some cobbling kind of back and forth between looking at support issues and asset division issues. And so I like to think of it as it's a puzzle and these are just different pieces that go together. And so the court is often kind of considering, you know, is required and have to consider one when looking at the other. I'm gonna turn it over to Jared to talk about the last factor. So contribution is one of the areas where divorce attorneys can get rich because there is, you know, a judge has significant discretion to uh, consider premarital assets and what happens with them, gifts and inheritances received during the marriage. Uh, there's no formula. Everything is on the table. And uh, it tends to, I think, be very fact-specific. Length of the marriage is one of the factors that's most important. But it, it's very helpful if you have a case where contribution has been an issue to try to quantify, to serve discovery that says, please identify or provide statements you're using a request for production of documents or interrogatories, you know, provide evidence of what the value of the assets you held at the time of marriage was. If you received any gifts or inheritances during the marriage, uh, what was the date? What was the amount? What was the form? Uh, who was it to? Was it to both parties or was it to one? Where did the inheritance go? Uh, did it go into a joint account? Did it remain segregated? Was it integrated into the fabric of the marriage? Uh, depending on the facts and circumstances of a particular case, you want to pay particular attention to that. Because it's so gray uh, and because there's a real opportunity for advocacy, you want to serve discovery that's going to give you the details you need to either defend or attack uh, the issue of, of how contribution uh, should be considered as part of property division. Yeah, there are definitely no hard and fast rules when it comes to any of those categories, whether it's premarital assets or inheritances. On the inheritance side, I will say I can recall a case where um, a party inherited toward the tail end of the marriage, and I was in front of a very good judge, and she was very clear about sort of what her criteria were for deciding whether she was going to give the other spouse part of the inheritance. And so some of the things that she said, which I think about now, um, are, you know, did the parties rely on this inheritance when they were managing their own finances during the marriage? For example, did they choose not to save for retirement because they knew that this money was coming in? If there was reliance on the inheritance, this particular judge was going to be more inclined to give the opposing party a piece of it. Um, did the opposing party have any material role in caring for the individual who passed away? Which I thought was interesting. Um, so those were some of the things that this judge thought should be considered when looking at and kind of what do you do about inheritance, in this case, an inheritance that came in uh, late during the marriage? Um, so I think we have just one question so far. We're going to just spend the last 10 minutes on questions. So uh, I think we might have just sort of covered this. It says, can you address the rules governing how to treat property that one spouse brought into the marriage, like an investment property, that the other spouse had little involvement with during the marriage? So I, I think we sort of covered that. Yeah, I mean, for, it's part of the marital estate. For sure. It is part of the marital yeah. estate. Uh, and the factors that are going to determine how it is treated, one, uh, length of the marriage is probably the most, uh, I think, important. The longer the marriage, the more likely that that asset's going to be divided either equally or closer to equally. If it's a short-term marriage, far less likely. 
And then the, the factors that Gina just mentioned, reliance, whether it was uh, integrated into the fabric of the marriage, uh, you know, how is it used also is going to, you know, the, the more isolated it was, uh, the more likely it's going to not be divided or only a portion of it's going to be divided. The more integrated into the fabric of the marriage it was, the greater, I think, the likelihood is a judge that would treat it as a 50-50 or near 50-50 division. Again, very fact-specific, gray, depends on the judge. Yeah, I mean, just bear in mind that there really, there are no statutes that govern this. The case law is a little bit all over the map, and every judge may have his or her own way of doing this. I mean, I have heard of some judges that might have formulas that they use where they look at, you know, the length of the marriage, et cetera. Other, you know, other judges will have reputations for really being um, very protective of family wealth and, and protecting premarital assets or inheritances and other judges not so much. So unfortunately for those of us practicing in Massachusetts, unlike many other states, um, this is a situation where there, there is a lot of gray. And I think you have to, to some extent, try and use a little bit of common sense when trying to set your client's expectations. Yes, that's the most important. So that you, um, you know, I hate when I have a client come and maybe I'm second counsel in and they'll say, well, my prior lawyer, you know, promised me or told me that I would be able to exclude this completely because, um, you know, I've put it all in the house. And so that's mine. I mean, and I would say, I think generally speaking, you have better luck with a judge maybe giving someone some credit for premarital assets if they were not put into the house and if they were put into a separate account altogether or maybe a retirement account. But I think judges tend to be more likely if it's um, something like a, you know, money that was thrown into a house, you know, to, to kind of include it and I not give so much credit for that. I agree. Especially if it's a medium to long-term marriage. Yeah, I think that that's yeah. true. Um, are there any other questions from the audience? Let's see. All right. Jared, any closing remarks? Um, just that, you know, when answering discovery, um, this is where attorneys can make mistakes that are costly. Uh, you know, be honest, keep your clients honest, try to be timely, and be complete, particularly with regards to answers to expert interrogatories for uh, any kind of request for production of document that asks for any documents you intend to offer as evidence at trial. You want to, if, if you have a case that goes to trial, you want to make sure that you have been complete and thorough and timely in your discovery responses, or that information could be excluded. So don't make that mistake. And lastly, I will just say, I know that most of the time, the folks who are watching these programs are either very new attorneys, sometimes even people who are still in law school and thinking about um, getting into family law upon graduation. Please feel free to reach out to either one of us. You have our names. You can find us easily on the internet. Um, if you have any further questions um, after the program. With all of that being said, thank you all so much for attending. Thank you, Gina and Jared, for being our speakers for today. And I wish everyone a great rest of the afternoon. Bye, everyone. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.